to the School of Theology. It's good uh, to be with you. We look forward to uh, together in this uh, semester course uh, covering the doctrine of the Trinity. As I told uh, Cheryl Ramirez just a little bit earlier, it's a very shallow subject. It does not require a great deal of concentration. Uh, quite the opposite. The, the Trinity and the Incarnation are the two utterly unique doctrines within the Christian faith. There are possibly out there in other religions uh, different uh, uh, settings for doctrines that are parallel or quite similar to different aspects of Christianity. But the Trinity and the Incarnation are sui generis. They are, they are uniquely Christian, and they define the very fabric and grammar of Christian theology. Sui generis. They're, they're of one kind. They're of a, a unique kind. Somebody else did that. I Sorry. Sui generis. Well, that would require Latin. Um, let's see. S U I G E N. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. It's uh, it's it means unique. So the the Trinity and the Incarnation are utterly unique doctrines within the Christian faith, and they are defined. Uh, uh, in the church's understanding, uh, they, they are rooted in, flow from the church's understanding of the Bible. And down through church history, uh, we have had uh, different groups of Christians attempt to articulate or to explain them to varying degrees of depth and also accuracy. And we're going to look both at biblical material in our course together and also at some historical examples. As a matter of fact, tonight, by way of introduction, I want to show you some of the contours and differences uh, within the thinking of one great Christian theologian. Uh, but as we come together this evening, uh, let me read a portion of Scripture, and then we'll gather our thoughts about the Trinity uh, starting at this point. This is Matthew chapter 28, and beginning at verse 16. Uh, this is after the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, but the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Uh, This particular passage is known as the Great Commission, and it is the fount of much uh, Christian missionary endeavor down through the generations. Uh, In the early church, it was understood to apply to the apostles most directly and to be the launching verse that really sent them out into the known world, different apostles uh, of the twelve, as soon as uh, it became clear that Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem appeared to be imminent, Uh, They divided up the known world and headed off in different directions. For example, uh, the Apostle John is said to have gone to uh, Central uh, Asia Minor, today modern Turkey, to the area around Ephesus. Thomas is said to have gone uh, towards the east and made it all the way to India. And the church there today uh, has his name and claims a heritage starting with that Apostle. But this passage is not only a matter of practical theology and missionary concern, it is also one of the major chair passages on the doctrine of the Trinity. Here, 
in the context of baptism, which is a matter of Christian sacrament and worship, Jesus gives us the Trinitarian formula, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. The names of the three persons of the Trinity are given here in their traditional order of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are designated as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And notice that at the same time, it's the name, not the names, plural, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's a hint here of unity and also of plurality. And together, uh, these two different aspects uh, form uh, the basis or, or uh, context of our doctrine of the Trinity. We will be studying God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, how three persons can be of one essence, and how the Bible can teach us nuance in this matter, what difference also it makes for our Christian living. Our course together is going to be made up uh, of two different parts, uh, as it was uh, last uh, year. The first part is going to be a lecture that I will give, uh, covering uh, uh, progressively different segments of this doctrine. And then uh, Dr. Robert Stacy will be here, and he will be guiding us through a discussion and interaction uh, over the world and life view implications of this doctrine. So it's not just a, an abstract matter that we're considering, but also this, this very deep and important doctrine, this foundational doctrine, in its practical aspect to our Christian living. So hopefully we will. Welcome. Here is Dr. Bob Stacey. So we're, uh, we are now complete, and we can begin. Welcome. Uh, let me also check. Is it a little cool? Uh, that's Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16 down to the end of the book, which is verse 20, 16 to 20. Well, let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we thank you that your word is true and sure. Uh, we thank you that that is the case because your Son is true and sure. And that is because you are true and sure in your divine nature. Uh, you are the holy, righteous, true and living God. And we pray, O oh Heavenly Father, that as we study about this very deep and important doctrine of the Trinity, that you will help us to understand, not only with our minds, but also with our hearts and lives, that we might live differently because of you, and that we might feel differently because of you. We pray, O oh Heavenly Father, that all of our living and even our doxology will be to your greater praise because of who you are. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking at the doctrine of the Trinity together. And uh, to do that, we have to first face the question, what is Christian theology? We have to place ourselves within the overall structure of Christian thinking. Uh, normally, there are major topics that are covered in the study of Christian theology. The first is the doctrine of Scripture. If I put it more technically, uh, the doctrine of revelation and Scripture. And then secondly is the doctrine of God. Now, the doctrine of God includes a number of different things. Traditionally, it includes the nature of God and the Trinity. So you have a study of the nature of God and then the three persons and their interrelationship together. Uh, you have not only who God is, but also what God does. And so the decrees of God and the creation of God and the providence of God, and whether that be the creation of the world or or of living things, or of 
plants and animals, or of angels and powers and principalities, or even of men and women and boys and girls, the creation of humankind and the, the interaction that humankind has with God. And so the topic of sin uh, typically is, is uh, knocking on the door as we think about the works of God. But separated from that as a major head is the doctrine of man, the creation of man particularly, and also the, uh, the covenant relationship that God uh, had with man as uh, not just a mago Dei made in his image, but also under the covenant of works, and then the fall in sin. Uh, the topic of Christ comes next. Scripture, God, man, Christ, because his person and work are important to understanding the next topic, which is salvation. And salvation includes things like justification and sanctification. It includes the topic of uh, the perseverance of thank you, the perseverance of the saints, and then also uh, our Lord's return. So we have uh, in the doctrine of salvation then the church as the next topic, uh, the uh, what the church is, the body of Christ, the officers and structure of the church, as well as her work and her worship, and then finally, last things. Uh, the return of our Lord, uh, our coming, the coming of Christ, both general uh, eschatology or last things about the order of these things and what we can expect to happen, but also personal eschatology. Uh, what happens to me when I die? Uh, where do I go? Uh, what am I going to see? What are things going to be like in my own experience? All of that set of questions also traditionally falls under last things. So, Scripture, God, man, Christ... And then salvation, the church, and last things. And all of these are interrelated. Uh, Christology is central to absolutely everything. Uh, but each of these major uh, heads of doctrine or loci or uh, uh, topics of doctrine are important in the study of Christian theology. So we are, we are in the second topic, the study of God. And instead of following the traditional Western pattern of spending a lot of time talking about the nature of God before we talk about the three persons, we're going to follow... Um, what I think is uh, a very biblical and perhaps uh, uh, certainly a very Eastern, more Eastern way of looking at the three persons first and then backing into the, ne- the nature of God. Because God is three persons in one nature, we can either start with a three and work to the one, or we can start with a one and work to the three. Uh, both of those uh, are symmetric and work one with another. There are strengths and weaknesses to each approach, uh, but we're going to take uh, start with the Trinity and then work our way back to the nature of God. What is the doctrine of God? Well, it covers, more narrowly, uh, the existence and knowability of God, his names and nature, then the topic of the Trinity, both the unity of the Trinity uh, and the diversity of the Trinity, Uh, the work of the triune God then, with the decree and creation and providence. So all of these different things are in the broad topic of God, and it's right at the center on the Trinity that we're going to be looking at, both the unity of the three persons and their diversity, and how they fit together. How do we know of God? Well, the, uh, uh, the next slide gives us some answers. We know of him by general and special revelation. We talked about this uh, last uh, semester, and if you missed that, don't worry. It will come back again. We have a whole cycle of topics that we cover, and Bob and I are going to be teaching this uh, course until we go into, is it our first retirement or our second retirement? Second, it's kind of like first breakfast and second breakfast. Um, God speaks through nature to us. We can, we can look at a sunset or the Texas sky. 
Uh, we can even study ants on the ground and uh, the microscopic things of creation. And both in its grandeur and in its detail, God communicates to us through the created order. He communicates about his glory, his power, and his majesty. We learn basic things about the nature of God through the created order. But then we learn very special and salvific things through God speaking to us um, through prophets and apostles, through ultimately and most foundationally his son and those that his son chooses to speak to us through. Uh, the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. And uh, how these two different kinds of revelation complement and help and encourage one another is a great and glorious topic. But we know of God because we can see his glory in the universe around us and because in the pages of Scripture he describes himself to us as the passage we read uh, from Matthew 28 uh, tells us about Jesus commenting on the Trinity and how he speaks of it and uses it Uh, in uh, a command to his apostles. Uh, Scripture is also normative for us. Uh, At the end of the day, we look at the created order, and and we may or may not get our understanding of God through that realm uh, in proper order. But but, uh, the bottom line is is that with regard to the uh, Scriptures, we get the benefit of both Old Testament shadow and also New Testament reality. And uh, as Luther said, said, uh, he has to, we have to stand with the Bible. Here I stand, I can do no other. When God speaks to us through his word, when he declares something through his prophets and apostles, it's not just them talking or a matter of human interpretation. It binds us a heart and soul, life and conscience uh, as the Lord's. And so we must follow. But history is explicative. That is, we're not alone in a vacuum. We don't exist on a desert island. We have others that we're in fellowship with in the body of Christ. And so down, that's not just presently in this room or in this congregation or in this town or in this world, but also down through history. And so we will be thinking and listening uh, to the voices of uh, brothers and sisters that have come before in the early church and also in the medieval church, the Reformation period, uh, and then finally in the modern period. All of these are important for us to listen to and make sure uh, that we uh, listen to how other brothers and sisters have understood the Bible. Not that they have always understood it properly, because we have recourse to the grammar and to the historical context, etc. But it's, uh, it's always good to touch base with those uh, in the body of Christ down through the ages, because they, well, may have thought of things that we haven't. And as we listen to them and go back to the Word, we'll find that our understanding grows, that there's more light breaking forth from there than we apprehended previously. And uh, also, it's, it's a very self-conscious thing. We, we have the privilege of standing on the shoulder of others. Um, can you imagine trying to derive just from the Bible with no Christian teaching at all, no, no uh, others that have come before, uh, trying to understand uh, what the Bible teaches and the basic rudiments of the faith, it would be a great challenge. But, but living 20 centuries after the appearance of our Lord, 21 now, we have the privilege of many who have come before us. And so we listen to them and we seek to weigh what they say by the Scriptures that we might be bound by the Word of God. Uh, we have said that uh, Scripture is normative uh, in Old Testament shadow. 
And uh, what that means for us is, is that we don't expect the texture and teaching of the Bible to be absolutely uniform and flat all the way across. God progressively speaks to us about himself as we turn the pages of Scripture. And the amount of information about the Trinity in the New Testament is larger than the amount of information about the Trinity in the Old Testament. Now, make sure you understand this. I'm not saying that there was no Trinity in the Old Testament, and there is the Trinity in the New. There's the Trinity in both the Old and New Testament. But God tells us more about himself in greater detail when the fullness of the light of his his Son in resurrection comes versus uh, what he told us in the earliest of days when he was being very rudimentary and he was giving us line upon line, um, truth upon truth, building up our knowledge. Uh, There are hints about plurality, teachings about plurality, and also the unity of God that are in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament lays the foundation and the expectation and even to some degree the basic tension that leads us to look for and to expect the Trinity. But by the time we get to the New Testament, the Trinity is everywhere assumed and articulated because of the fullness of resurrection light that has come. Jesus came, the Son of God incarnate, and he spoke of his heavenly Father, and he promised them the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can imagine that after after Pentecost, uh, there was a firm grasp of the existence of all three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they were all seen to be God, and they were so deeply steeped in the concept of unity from the Old Testament that it was a great help to them. So, Old, the Old Testament is shadow preparing us for New Testament uh, deeper understanding of the Trinity because the reality comes into full view or blossom uh, in the New Testament itself. We have an amazing range of material about the Trinity in the New Testament. Uh, it's no longer uh, teachings about uh, unity and diversity or, or um, unity and plurality. We get the names of the three persons of the Trinity very Uh, forcefully and repeatedly told to us. The fact that they're co-equal is communicated not only by the things that that Jesus and the apostles say about each one, but if you look carefully at the salutations and also the benedictions to the epistles, there you will see evidence that um, makes it uh, undoubtable uh, that the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal and all three to be worshipped because the order in which their names are even mentioned is not sacrosanct. Uh, You will find the apostles varying the order to suit their context, which helps communicate to us about the equality of the three persons. Now, when we come to the early church, we're on ground, which is very rich for the Trinity, because uh, there were... um, Doubts and false teachings challenging the church and the world around them about the nature of God, but also about how to put together this unity and this diversity, this oneness and this threeness. And even in the pages of the New Testament, you have very careful grammar that is used, avoiding falling off the cliff in one direction towards Unitarianism, where the three persons collapse just into one, and also avoiding falling off in the other direction, where the three persons fly apart, and you get a a tripartite polytheism, as it were, um, which has more in keeping with a lot of Greek and pagan culture because it's polytheistic. And in the other extreme, uh, you have that basic unity, which would have some attractions towards uh, 
a misunderstanding of historical Old Testament Judaism. So uh, the, the early church found itself uh, having to think through actively what it thought about the topic of the Trinity. And so you have that in stages. First, you have a lot of discussion about God and his nature and the Father. And then you come to a crisis over the Son. Uh, the Son is known to be human. The Son is known to be divine. But how is he human and divine? And how do these two natures fit together in one person? And the whole uh, basic uh, personal architecture of that uh, had to be thought through as they were constantly driven back to the Bible by the false teaching of heretics. And then finally, kind of in a sweep-up operation, like uh, parallel to um, World War II, you know, once, uh, once we took the beaches in Normandy and we had Hitler on the, one, on the run, uh, victory in the war was really just a matter of time. But, of course, there were still some fairly real bullets that were flying. And there were people that would die, and there were towns to conquer, and there was a lot to do. In the same way, uh, once we had settled the issue of God the Father and therefore the nature of God, and then secondly, the incarnation, so the existence of the Son and, and how the Son is both divine and human, uh, then the, the, the deity of the Holy Spirit and personality of the Holy Spirit were kind of an afterthought in many ways. But that, too, had to be thought through, and uh, the Bible uh, repeatedly checked. And so we will do that uh, following in the steps of brothers and sisters that have gone before from the early church. So what I'm trying to tell you is this. The early church isn't bad. Don't think that because we're um, Reformed or or Protestant that that somehow uh, the early church is something that's just for the Catholics. Oh, uh, not at all. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, the basic claim of the Reformers always was that they were the ones continuity with the Bible and with the the core of teaching of the early church fathers and that a wrong turn or detour had been taken by the Roman Catholic Church many generations before that progressively had led to deeper and deeper theological and practical trouble until it was necessary in order to make a break with that and to reestablish the church, reform the church uh, on a proper biblical basis. So so, uh, Athanasius is my brother. Uh, Anselm is my brother. Uh, Irenaeus is a good friend, and so uh, I won't. I won't let you. Uh, you won't get me to give up any of those uh, brothers in the faith that have come before. Uh, the early church has got some good guys in it. Now you also have uh, around the edges because they didn't have as many shoulders to stand on. Some trouble. Uh, even in this particular painting, you have a reflection of part of the trouble that you had. Um, this kind of. Uh, uh, diversity of the three persons is shown here, and the unity is shown that by the time you get right under here or something, it's as if the three have merged together in being. There are some, uh, there are some fairly weird-looking uh, church uh, icons and uh, images and artifacts that have been left behind that, that communicate to us some of the pitfalls that some small slips that some made in a pagan direction. So we'll be pointing those out as well. The medieval church uh, was a time where there was an expansion, an explosion of learning, a great concentration on how the basic Christian faith fit together in a more detailed way and how the Christian faith was to be um, related to and was to interact with philosophy, uh, whether it be Platonic or Aristotelian in one form or another. And so during this period, you get a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting volumes written, um, how shall I say it tactfully, 
Some spent a little too much time writing volumes. They wrote more than they knew, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, you have uh, such complexity uh, in some of the speculations that sort of uh, ran out of the barn uh, that uh, local church life could become distracted uh, from the central important figure, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The cross became obscured. Uh, the person of Christ became obscured. The nature of the Trinity got a little dodgy when people spent a lot of time talking about the Father and the Son and Mary. And she sort of supplanted the role of the Holy Spirit in a lot of people's minds. Uh, and then when it came to, to matters of, of worship more directly, all sorts of difficulty uh, with the, the sacraments having uh, new philosophically driven interpretations rather than biblically exegetically driven interpretations uh, with uh, extra additions. You couldn't have baptism if you didn't have oil, if you didn't have a certain kind of salt. Um, attention was paid to all these extraneous things, more so than the central nature of the matter uh, in the sacrament, pointing to Christ and to his work for us. And so the medieval period is one in which we will interact with in a critical way. Uh, with regard to the Reformation, we have great appreciation and admiration. They had a great hill to climb because there was so much fog in the room from the medieval period, if I can be so bold. Um, and uh, so Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Bootser and the other basic magisterial reformers are our friends and our aid in this matter. And, and they do not all handle themselves in exactly the same sort of way. Let me surprise you tonight uh, with a little reference to uh, the great theologian, John Calvin. Uh, he wrote a little volume in 1537. Uh, I almost made this uh, the basic core text uh, for the whole uh, program in the School of Theology, other than the bite-sized theology, which we did last semester. But it's a delightful little volume, and if it were more readily available, I would commend it to you more broadly. Uh, it was written in 1537, when Calvin was still a young lad, young man, and uh, it contains not the whole of this printed volume. There is a ton of commentary material and introduction. It's just a handful of pages right here in the middle. It goes, uh, well, about 50 pages, and the print is not all that small, and the, uh, the margins at the top and bottom are just excessive. I think if you really worked at it, you could turn this into about 25 decent-sized pages. It's not that long. And Calvin was trying to summarize the Christian faith uh, for his, uh, his band of followers there in Geneva. And so uh, he covers in the order of consideration. It was very traditional, following the scholastics, following St. Patrick before due to Patrick's places that traditional order, and so he starts with God. And uh, he covers the topic, all men are born in order to know God. So it's sort of God and epistemology uh, through the back door. What difference there is between true and false religion. So this is a very subjectively oriented thing. He's grounding it in our own experience as well as in uh, God himself. And then the third chapter is what we must know of God. Now, after you get past the second page, uh, he moves on to man, free will, sin, death. Uh, we get a nice long section on law and the Ten Commandments. Uh, we get soteriology, election and predestination, 
uh, and then uh, an expansive treatment of prayer and the sacraments and the, the life of the church. Uh, if you're looking for the doctrine of the Trinity in this volume, you find it in the third chapter. And you find it almost with, well, he talks about God and there are hints of unity and plurality. But if you're looking for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in a clear kind of affirmation, in this little volume, in the key chapter where it should be, it's not there. Those those tie, those uh, names of the three persons are sprinkled in the volume, but it's, um, how shall I say it, a little disappointing when you pick up this volume because you go, wow, uh, this is not as fully organized in the Trinitarian uh, way as I would have expected Calvin, the great theologian, to be. But now don't, uh, don't count a good man down. By 1559, uh, Calvin has expanded. This is just one of the two volumes uh, in the modern printing of his institutes. And he has a a whole lengthy section here uh, covering, um, let's see, covering uh, 50 pages, uh, longer, really longer than that itself, uh, on uh, how we know God, epistemology. Then he does another 50, 50 pages on the doctrine of Scripture so that he can get the basic uh, text from which we're going to derive our understanding about. And then we have another 50 pages that cover uh, theology in general, and there is a specific treatment of uh, the one essence, uh, which contains the three persons. And so there's a more focused Trinitarian discussion, as well as the fact that he has dispersed his doctrine of the Trinity through every major topic. He does not handle topics without treating them in a Trinitarian way. And so uh, Calvin has developed a Trinitarian structure to his thinking, which is very sophisticated and profound. He doesn't just kind of check the block of the Trinity and then move on. It's always relevant all the way through. And so by the time we come to later short formulas, uh, we have uh, uh, very clear, strong sections on God and the three persons. And he covers those. For example, in the... Um, uh, French confession uh, that he ended up writing, uh, let's see if I have date, in 1562. Uh, he has a nice section on the Trinity and again still retains the sprinkling of the names and treatment all the way through. So Calvin, uh, in his understanding, grows and strengthens, not his own belief, because he affirms very strongly that he holds to the original church uh, teaching uh, uh, on the Trinity because he finds it to be. Uh, in keeping with the Bible. But he grows in his understanding of how to emphasize that topic and organize it. So the Reformation period is one that we will uh, draw much from uh, as we go through. Now the modern period is an interesting one because you find a study of contrast. For example, um, this is the most recent uh, full volume on the doctrine of of God and can, contains a large section on the Trinity. It's by John Frame, who teaches at RTS Orlando. Um, this is one of those uh, John Frame doorstop volumes that uh, says almost everything about everything, but he does it organized around the doctrine of God. And uh, I just want to thank uh, the Lord that his treatment of the Trinity and of the doctrine of God is sound. Uh, it's a very sound volume, so I commend it to you. Uh, also, Gerald Bray's treatment in an earlier work, The Contours of Christian Theology, very historically nuanced. Uh, Gerald Bray is an amazing 
academic evangelical. I can remember being at the Fellowship of European Evangelical Theologians with him. Uh, he was one of the main people running it. And uh, how he managed to translate into five languages, uh, one speech into five languages at the same time, I don't know. He had these foot pedals or something. He kept changing, uh, changing microphones or or what the line was he was speaking into. Somebody would speak in English, and he would translate it into multiple languages so that everyone there could uh, could understand. Uh, he's, a, he's a fine scholar and has done a very sensitive treatment of the doctrine of the Trinity. The old standby is Bobby, uh, which is still uh, used in some places. Uh, it's from uh, the 19th century, and, and uh, it's still very much worth reading. These are all evangelical men. Um, and this, this contrast with, at the end, Middle to the end of the 19th century in Germany, uh, we had uh, a liberal theologian by the name of Wilhelm Hermann. Hermann was profoundly influential, shaped an entire generation of men in their understanding of the Trinity, or uh, understanding of theology in general. And in his systematic theology, which is it's so interesting, um, a lot of systematicians, or every systematician that treats modern theology has to mention Hermann. And I can remember... Uh, having um, the professor of theology, one of the professors of theology from Aberdeen University, Trevor Hart, um, had dinner at our home in Edinburgh and sitting around afterwards drinking tea and and uh, was quizzing Trevor about what he was lecturing on. He said, oh, well, I'm lecturing on Wilhelm Hermann. And he said, he stopped and he said, you know, we all lecture on Wilhelm Hermann. And I really never met anybody who's read Wilhelm Hermann. We're all drawing from secondary sources. He said, you know what? What really did he have to say? I'd love to see a systematic theology. Well, I happened to find one, and so I bought it for uh, uh, for 40 pence, which is about 60 cents. I found it in a used bookshop. And uh, here it is, his systematic theology, translated into English. And as you study um, uh, the way it unfolds, it's very subjectivist. It's built around the mind and feelings of men. And so instead of treating the Trinity at the beginning of the volume, he treats the Trinity at the end kind of as an afterthought. And his treatment of the Trinity covers, well, 1.25 pages. That's all he has to say in all this volume. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, rightly understood, is an expression of monotheism in its final form. It is involved in the revelation to which our faith consciously owes its life, that we can perfectly picture to ourselves the God who redeems us only in three aspects. Now, I really don't need to read much more of the extended paragraph because, you see, there he's talked about the evolution of the doctrine into its final form. Without reference to the Bible. That's a little trouble. And then secondly, he's made reference to um, our faith consciously owing its life to this idea, to the doctrine. Not to God, not to the triune God, but to this doctrine, to this idea. And again, it's a subjectivized truth. In uh, the German idealistic liberal theology, it doesn't matter whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. It doesn't matter whether the Trinity really exists or not. What matters is how we feel about it. Because what matters is really just you and me. And uh, that's... Uh, that's what uh, he goes on to emphasize here and uh, just claims that it's all a great mystery. So 
that's at one end of the scale of modern theology, that kind of liberalism. Thankfully, the Lord has preserved some evangelicals who uh, are in line with the church fathers in the Bible and have lost this great teaching. Dr. Douglas Kelly, who teaches at RTS Charlotte, has finished the first volume of what I think are going to be four volumes of his systematic theology. And this is at the other end of the scale. He has 579 pages on the trade. He decided to talk about it first, not last. And I think he said more here about the Trinity and a systematic theology than anybody I've ever read. So I I commend that to you for uh, meeting the challenge. Now, what we have done is chosen for you as a textbook (laughs) something that's uh, not 470 to 579 pages. But this is written by a principal now, Donald McLeod, or actually he's now retired principal, at the Free Church College in Edinburgh, Scotland. And Donald... um, This may be his most brilliant work. It is the most simple and helpful explanation of the Trinity that I have ever seen. Um, The only defect in this particular printing, uh, and I brought three other printings of the book just so you can see uh, that it's come in a variety of different forms. Uh, What it's missing in this particular edition, however, are all the cartoons that were drawn to go with it. So we hope to be uh, putting those on the overhead periodically, I had can't scan them. But uh, the point here is, is that uh, read this, you'll enjoy it, uh, you'll chew on it. Uh, Bob will help us uh, uh, think through uh, not just what it says, but also its implications for our lives. Shared Life, the Trinity and the Fellowship of God's People uh, by Donald McLeod. So we commend that to you without reservation. It's an excellent point. What now? No. Unfortunately not. There was one printed in America, and they were only given permission to publish, I think it's 300 books. And all of my former students from RTS had those books, so they were turned loose up there. Uh, here I've given you an example of the kind of tension that exists uh, over the Trinity and over uh, uh, theology in the modern age. Uh, T.F. Torrance, um, a theologian of the Trinity, he's hailed uh, in this particular volume, Analyzing His Thinking. And then a book on what is the Trinity by R.C. Sproul. Here, here we have a neo-Orthodox theologian, uh, not a liberal like Wilhelm Hermann, someone reacting to Hermann, reacting to uh, the damage of his theology to the Christian faith, but yet someone who didn't come all the way back home uh, to biblical and evangelical Reformation teaching. He came back to parts of it. And then we have R.C. Sproul, someone that the Lord has used mightily in order to uh, re-engage the thinking of the church and and uh, engage some of the wider world on, on basic Christian doctrine, including the Trinity. He's not, he's not budged one inch on the Trinity, praise the Lord. So we thank the Lord for our sea. When you say the Orthodox, oh. question is, what do I mean by Neo-Orthodox? Good question. Yes. Neo-Orthodoxy is a theological movement that began in the end of the 19th century. And it grew up in reaction. The roots of it are the end of the 19th century. And it blossomed in the 20th century. And it, it was a reaction to the kind of German idealistic liberalism that Hermann himself uh, helped promulgate. The idea that, that God really is there. That this subjective liberal fascination with man and his feelings, and man's reality... And, and allowing scientific doubts about God, whether God really exists or whether historical events have actually happened about the Christian faith. 
Uh, that kind of subjective reaction to modernity and to scientific studies and endeavor and history, that that was a mistake. And that there needs to be a shift. And that shift began to take place by the use of what's called dialectic. That is, where opposite statements about God would be made and the reader would be left in tension or left in the middle trying to resolve the tension between the two statements. It was an attempt at the same time to rediscover the teaching of the Reformation and the post-Reformation period and go back to classic Protestantism. Um, one of the major fathers or proponents of this was uh, Karl Barth. And Karl Barth, um, forced, almost forced into teaching, found himself needing a textbook because... What textbook do you use when you have all your students having been taught that God may may not well exist, it doesn't matter, the resurrection doesn't matter, and and everything you learned in Sunday school is wrong? What textbook do you use? And so what he did was, in uh, in an old bookshop, he found a copy of Heinrich Heppe's book, Reform Dogmatics, which is a summary of the theology that was taught by Reformed scholars from the time of Calvin up until the Westminster Assembly, Westminster Confession of Faith. And this particular volume, which is in your syllabus, is a recommended overachiever volume. Uh, this particular volume um, quoted lots of 100 different scholars. And uh, uh, the German explanation and glue holding the quotes together was German. And the quotes were mostly in Latin. And they're fragments of Greek and Hebrew that are embedded in the Latin. And so students had to be good at German, and they had to be good at Latin, and they had to be good at Greek and Hebrew to be able to understand. And uh, the value, people have done studies of the um, economic value of this book on the used market once he started using it. It just skyrocketed. Finally was reprinted. Um, Bart went back and used solid theology. I've used this at Reform Seminary before, almost every semester. But... Bart was very self-conscious about changing the meaning, translating it into a modern context. Not one that would bow to the uh, idols, the man-made idols of liberal theology, but that instead uh, would emphasize that God really is there in some objective sense, but that we should not necessarily equate that with history. It was uh, the realm of story. It was the realm of myth and idea, not the realm necessarily of historical experience. And so you end up with a very mixed message from these guys, some of them believing in the resurrection quite clearly, and others having in their writings left real doubts about whether the resurrection ever occurred. So so in a sense, it it, it uses theology, the definitions of orthodoxy, but, but, but but would redefine Definition. Uses all our vocabulary, uses our text, and says it means something else. Um, in, in the American experience, German idealistic liberalism hit, hit America after the Civil War. And that means that the major institutions in the Northeast, the part of the country that won the war and wasn't destroyed, whose libraries weren't burned, whose um, professorial endowments were not put into worthless Confederate money. Um, 
they bought this stuff hook, line, and sinker. They sent their students off to these guys to be trained. Uh, well, um, yeah. That was a half a word, right? The, uh, uh, you know, the major, the major centers of learning, such as Harvard and Yale, but, but even the Presbyterian seminaries that were up in that region of the country, and evangelical seminaries, they were taken hook, line, and sinker. It's, it, it was nearly impossible by the first part of the 20th century to find a conservative school up in that area. Now, in the South, you had lots of conservative schools because, see, their libraries had been burned. And their endowments were gone, and their people were so poor. I mean, they had trouble rebuilding church buildings, much less sending anybody off to Europe for a Ph.D. And so uh, what happened was, in God's kind providence, they were protected from that wave of liberal theology that came in. And it wasn't until the 1950s, after World War II, that, for example, the old Southern Presbyterian Church had had, had uh, ministerial candidates who went off to Europe to get their PhDs, and they came back with this neo-Orthodox theology. And embedded in this neo-Orthodox theology that they brought back was an assumption that the Bible was not necessarily historically true. An assumption that really was the underlying assumption of liberalism. And so when I grew up, and we went, uh, I, I, was, I grew up and part of my congregation was evangelical, and and we would hear whispers, you know, about how Columbia Seminary had gone liberal and Union Seminary had gone liberal and Austin Seminary and Louisville had gone liberal. What they meant by liberal was New Orthodox. Uh, and what they meant by liberal was that New Orthodoxy had brought in the view that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch and that resurrection wasn't necessarily true. But yet, the New Orthodox professors that were on campus talked all the time about the resurrection. They talked all the time about the incarnation the virgin birth. But they were doing it as neo-Orthodox folks. And so they didn't necessarily mean that there really was a virgin birth. They didn't necessarily, it was just an idea or it was part of the story and what really happened in history. The resurrection was a nice idea and, and you could spin yarns and write books on it and give lectures on it. But that doesn't mean that the tomb doesn't have bones in it necessarily. And so uh, that's the bifurcation between North and South and a large part of uh, the tension in which the PCA was given birth, uh, uh, what, 40 years ago now? 50 years ago. We're getting old. 40, 40, okay. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's the background. Um, what are we going to be covering in the course? Well, we're going to have an introduction. We're going to look at data on the Trinity, hence a plurality in the Old Testament, teaching in the New Testament. Look at the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit in uh, great detail. Then we're going to look at historical developments of the doctrine, and uh, those will include a lot of isms, if I can put it that way. You don't know yet what uh, Arianism is or what uh, uh, Apollinarianism is, but you will by the end of the course. We'll, we'll look at these topics together. And just to give you a peek so that you can take heart, the cartoons are coming. There's our first cartoon. Uh, this is Moses saying, uh, these are plenty complicated enough for now. Why don't we save the Trinity stuff for later? <laughs> All right, well, we're going to take a break, and uh, we'll come back uh, in five minutes and uh, talk some more. As, um, as Dr. Rankin said, this is sort of going to be our, our guiding book for the, for the, the semester. 
And I, frankly, I didn't, I, I did not know this book until Dr. Dr. Rankin introduced me to it. And I, but I'll tell you what, I, I enjoy it very much. I think you will enjoy it as well. Uh, my uh, suggestion, my plan for sort of working through this for you is, uh, we're going to spend some time talking about the first chapter this evening. It's kind of a, a sort of introduction and sort of scriptural foundation of the Trinity. Uh, but then from that point on, uh, I, well, I'll send this all out to you later, but I'll, just, I'll say it now so that you all have it in the back of your minds. We'll get back together in two weeks, and I assume you're all coming back in two weeks. Oh, and, and many more. This, this, yeah, that's just the beginning. Yeah. Uh, we'll read the second chapter, see, second session, second chapter. Then we're going to take them in two chapter chunks from that point on. It's not, it's not difficult reading. You will not be overwhelmed by that. Uh, but do, do, please, if you can, uh, read those chapters in advance. It will make our discussion much more uh, engaging if you have sort of the, sort of foundational material. I'm not asking you to memorize it. I won't, um, unlike my students, I won't ask you to write any essays about it. There will be no test in fact. But we'll have a much better discussion. How many times does the word Trinity appear in the Bible? Does anybody ever count? Zero. Actually zero, right? I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not news. So where does it come from then? I mean, has this ever, ever thought about it much? I mean, it turns out, let me just say this, it is one of the central doctrines of Christianity, isn't it? If I put it like this, can you be a Christian and deny the Trinity? I would say you couldn't. I mean, there are areas, understand, we have brothers and sisters in Christ out there who can't believe we baptize infants. But we don't break fellowship over that. We don't deny each other's faith over that, right? But let me say, the Trinity is central. It's not the only central doctrine, but it is one of them. It is so important, in fact, that it's part, I think, of the definition. So... Uh, historically, uh, somebody I've been reading recently, again, uh, Thomas Jefferson, we all love him, beloved founder of America, uh, didn't really think Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Now, he called himself a Christian, but what he meant by that was, I've seen this Christ guy, he writes some good stuff, I like him. Thumbs up, Christian. <laughs> but that's not the same thing, right? And so he, he denies Trinity. That really, you can't be a member of the faith if, if that is not part of, of your, your, your set of beliefs and doctrine. And I say that because not just, I'm not just sort of asserting myself. I'm not trying to, you know, with my authority, I declare. I have no authority. I declare nothing. But the scripture itself screams forth the doctrine of the Trinity. The word itself, don't be fooled by, you know, the various cultists who come knocking on your door like they do at my door. Uh, the word might not be there, but the, the doctrine clearly is stated. Even so, we're going to talk about this a little bit this evening. Even in the Old Testament, where we don't really usually associate it, right? We think of the, of the Trinity as kind of a New Testament doctrine. But even the Old Testament, if you understand it, sort of see it through the right lens, you see the Trinity even there, uh, even, even before the Incarnation, even before the advent of Christ, we see the Trinity taking uh, shape there. I want to start by taking just a little look at the, at the, uh, at the Old Testament here. And I'm going to ask, ask your participation, if you will. Does anybody have a Bible with them? Maybe, maybe a couple of you didn't. Oh, perfect. As we go through, I'm going to ask you to sort of help me look at some passages here, okay? And, um, and so we'll, we'll sort of work through some of them, but uh, I'm not really, this isn't like a sword drill. It's really not the point, but I just want to give you sort of a, sort of a, a hint of what we're talking about here. When we talk about the presence of, of the, the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, 
makes this um, this assertion. I want to see what you think about this. In the Old Testament, what was the world like around the Hebrews? The Hebrews were kind of known for their worship of the one true God, right? How did the rest of the people, their neighbors, how did they view that notion? It's almost like that kind of incredulity. What's wrong with you people? It's not so much that anybody begrudged them having a God. Of course, you Hebrews ought to have a God. We have a God. You have a God. Everybody has a God. What was so bizarre to all of their neighbors, all of their neighbors, was that they only had one, and not only that, they... Those Hebrews believed that that God was everybody's God. He was the God of everything, all times, all places. But I, I, I want to stress this. Do you see the how that made them stand out among the people that they lived with? That was, that was completely foreign to the understanding of the world that everybody else, everybody else, it's not an exaggeration, that monotheism was just really, it was unknown in the ancient world outside of the Israelites. So when we look at the Old Testament, in the there were times when they had other gods. The, 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 the Israelites? Yeah. yeah, okay, so, yeah, it would be nice if the Israelites were consistently monotheistic. Yeah, they weren't but consistent. On a good day, let's say. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, yeah. But no, you're right, so even they, but actually I'm glad you mentioned this, because this is kind of McLeod's point on looking into the Old Testament. He says that, what is the, what is the great risk that the Israelites have in their sort of context in the environment in which they live, everybody else worships multiple gods. There's polytheism everywhere. The temptation will be for them to think of a diversity of gods, right? But that's what's going to be surrounding them. Temptations of Hebrews. Exactly. So the Old Testament, much of it points to the unity of God. It has to because their temptation is sort of in the other direction. It's not unlike that cartoon that Dr. Rankin put up there. Look, the, there's plenty to teach here. The, it's not that the Trinity isn't present. We'll see that in just a moment. But it's, it's, not, it's not as actively, aggressively asserted as it is in the New Testament because the issues facing the Israelites were different. The unity of God was the real question. That's the part that they would have a hard time understanding because of where they lived and when they lived. And so that is... It's not the only message, but it's a frequent message of the Old, of the Old Testament. They have a hard time understanding that when he kept telling them, I'm the Lord God Almighty. He keeps telling them, because think about how many times in the Old Testament you get something like that, right? Right. I mean, every, but, every prophet. Sure. But think of that then in the context then of everything else all day long, every day in your life saying, oh, there's plenty of gods. Why do you have just one? What's wrong with you? It's, you, know, you can have so many more. Think how much. The constant message from the world was many gods, many gods, many gods. Periodically, every few decades or centuries, there would be another revelation, a prophet who would say, hey, by the way, the Lord your God is one. They needed to hear that message because they got a constant stream of the other message from their culture, from their context. Does that make sense? Is this the reason that God wanted them not to intermingle and intermarry and all that? I don't know if that's all of the reason. That's certainly part of the reason. What are you doing? You're marrying into polytheism. That's yeah. probably not good. I think there are other pitfalls with that, right? Ask Samson, for example. What could go wrong yeah. if you marry the wrong kind of person? Or even just have interest in the wrong kind of person. Ladies and gentlemen who are 
not yet married, keep that in mind. <laughs> but, and this, and this is where I think uh, McLeod's really on something really important here. Once you understand the Trinity, which we can, I think, very clearly from the New Testament, when you then go back and look at the Old Testament, it is clear that, the, that those, you might say, the impression of the Trinity is there, that the, the evidence even is there, but you need to interpret it, you need to see it. It's, it doesn't sort of jump out at you like it does in so many passages of the New Testament, which we'll talk about next time. But, but, but even, in the, even in that message of unity, there's still the message of the three in one, the diversity of, of, of God in that sense. So let's look at a couple of passages that might sort of reflect this. Can anybody quickly find for us Deuteronomy chapter 6? It's near the beginning. How hard could it be, right? Yeah. Can somebody read Deuteronomy 6, verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We could find a bunch more where that came from. That basic message appears over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The Lord your God is one. It's not, in that sense, complicated. It's not... There's not a great deal of mystery in that. There's mystery in the Trinity, right? I don't understand it, by the way. If you're thinking, uh, by the end of this term, we'll completely understand the Trinity, I'm sorry, we'll be disappointed. There is mystery. There ought to be. But not so much in the sense that the unity is, is mysterious. It's, it's not as clearly declared. Is, is, I guess, the first I guess, indication that there's a triune God that's exactly it. That's actually that's exactly where it's the next place, in fact, that McLeod goes. Elohim is plural. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't pretend to be a Hebrew scholar. Don't ask me any more questions about Hebrew. This is about all I know right here. <laughs> it's plural. Now you don't necessarily. I say that because you don't necessarily get that impression if you're reading along in your Bible. If you, first of all, if you, just, if you just see the word, if, you're, if you have a translation that just does that, you, uh, can you tell a plural Hebrew word from, from a singular? I can't. But even so, most of our translations that just translated God usually make it singular. I, 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 there's, there are reasons for this, I think. It's confusing otherwise. It sounds odd. You wonder why it sounds so odd? Because all of the pronouns and the adjectives and the verbs, if it's appropriate to say that about Hebrew, that go with it, are almost always singular. God's is. That's a typical sentence construction of the Old Testament. It's a plural noun, Elohim, with a singular verb. Now, if you don't understand grammar, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. But in English, that would be very bizarre. In fact, if you submit a paper to me in my class, you get red marks and bad things happen to your grade. Because it's not right. Except maybe when we're talking about a God who is three persons in one. So that, exactly, the word Elohim, which appears many times. Here's um, just a quick example. And it's just the ending. I can't remember the Hebrew letters that designate that. It's the I am. Yeah, you see this in other Hebrew words too. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That, that, that ending is what... Oh, that's the line. Of it. <laughs> right. Excellent. Turn quickly to Genesis. This is not hard to find. You can find that, right? There's a passage you all know intimately. Then God said, 
listen to the pronouns carefully, okay? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. It's the last part of that verse. is very important, but not for this. Let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? There are some scholars, not, not many these days, thankfully, but there are some scholars who used to say, well, um, he's talking to the angels, so it's him and the angels. Actually, I say scholars. Uh, that's basically what Jehovah's Witnesses say, and those people are crazy. But are we made in the image of angels? Nowhere does the Bible ever assert such a thing. Many times, it asserts that we're made in the image of God. So there is an image. It's the image of God. But look, here, God speaks in plural terms of himself. And yet, notice, one image. We're not made in the images of gods. We're made in the, Im- in the image of God. We, he says, let us make them in our image, and there's only one of them. Again, in the context of an ordinary English sentence, that wouldn't even really make sense. And you understand, for many, many, many centuries, people would read these passages and say, hmm, yeah, Flora, look at that. Because they didn't understand the Trinity yet. Until you get the revelation, until you get the incarnation of, of Jesus Christ, the Trinity maybe doesn't quite make sense yet. But once we know it, we can come back and look at passages like verses 26 and 27 and see a single image of God, but a plural description of that. I couldn't tell you. I told you that was the limit of my year. Sounds like a research paper. It's somebody else could write it, yes. Yeah, I would be surprised if it wasn't, but I, I don't know that with certainty. Similar, um, you don't have to turn there, similar passage in Isaiah chapter 6, just to give you, a, again, examples here. This is a good one because I used to both the singular and the plural right in the same verse. Remember, this is, Isaiah 6 is where uh, you know, the, uh, the cherubim takes the, the tongs and takes the coal off the altar and puts it to the lips of Isaiah because he's a man of unclean lips, and so in a sense he's purified. And, and what does it say here? In verse, after all that, you know, that, sort of the, you know, that, 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 that description of, of the temple of the Lord so clearly there. But what's, he, what's that, this, you know, this voice representing God, right? It says, whom shall I send... And who will go for us? I'm going to send him, but he's going out on behalf of us. The answer to Genesis 1-1. It's like, it's early, you're saying. Near the beginning is when Elohim first appears. But this passage in Isaiah, is, I think, just, it's, a, it's a beautiful reminder of the Trinity. The same God speaking both in singular and plural terms of himself. So character that we see often, not often, several times, in the Old Testament, and you've heard of him before, the angel of the Lord. How many times, that's not really a rhetorical question, please don't answer it, how many times does the angel of the Lord appear and do something? And you know, literally, what does it mean to be the angel of God? Angel literally means messenger, right? Somebody's he's bringing God's message. So that could just be, I mean, in a sense, you could be an angel in that way, I mean, you could take a message. But angel of the Lord, that's that of the Lord part sort of changes that to a certain degree, right? You might be a messenger, but you aren't necessarily an angel of the Lord. You understand that, what I mean by this, this distinction? You're trying to sort of think of this as, as we are as English speakers and readers. Let me say, let me show you what uh, McLeod has to say about this. He says, this, listen to what he says. This is a pretty strong assertion. The clearest of all his
hints of the Trinity in the entire Old Testament is the personage known as the angel of the Lord. The remarkable thing about him is that he is both distinguished from the Lord and identified with the Lord. Again, let me stress to you, those two things shouldn't go together. Distinguished, separate from, not, but identified with, same as. That doesn't really sound possible. And again, in an ordinary sort of, you know, if we're trying to construct an argument that is logical, you wouldn't want to mix those two things up. But there's a certain mystery to the Trinity here. Let's look at a couple of passages together to uh, illustrate. Um, still in Genesis, skip ahead to uh, chapter 16. Can somebody find 16.11? The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son. And you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. All right, hold that thought for one second, all right? Don't remember what you just said. Skip up now to chapter 22, just a few pages down the road, hopefully. 2212. Oh, I'm excited. I'll read this one. Um, actually, I'm going to back up to 11 to give you a little context. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. So the angel of the Lord is speaking. He said, do not lay, you know the, the context very well, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know now that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, think of both of these passages. They both talk about God, the messenger, the angel, the speaker, talks about God as if God is someone else. I wouldn't walk in here Look at all of your attentive faces, which makes me, warms my heart. <laughs> How odd would it be if I were to walk in here and say, hmm, I can tell by your attentiveness that you think Dr. Stacy is an interesting professor. It's kind of weird to speak about oneself in the third person, right? We usually think such people are ill. So either the angel of the Lord is ill, or, in a passage like this, I know that you fear God. He doesn't say, I know you fear me. He says, I know you fear God, as though God is not him. But then look, in the same verse, keep on going a little further, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He talks about himself in the third person, and then in the same sentence, talks about himself in the first person. Again, distinction, not God, but also unity, is God. Identified with Well, as much as the ESV is an accurate translation, well, I mean, which I believe it is. I think that you know, you'll find, yeah, if, if they're consistent, pardon me? The King James. And they wouldn't lie, right? No. I think that it's a fair rendering of the Hebrew. Okay. So, to the degree translations capture that, I think then, yes, you'll see that in pretty much any translation. Okay. Because that would probably be the first argument that some of your friends would make. Yeah. Yeah, those Jehovah's Witnesses, but yeah. again, they are those wrong. They are really simply wrong. Yeah. You know who doesn't like Jehovah's Witnesses? My dog. <laughs> it's like you can smell them. Like Girl Scouts, fine. Selling cookies, I don't care. But it comes, so someone a false gospel, he goes crazy. They found my neighborhood. So, while we're still in Genesis, one more, if you don't mind. Jump over to uh, uh, chapter 31. 
somebody read verses 11 through 13 for us? Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your country. You probably caught, even as she was reading, the operative point, right? The angel of the Lord halfway through his little description, he says, I am the God of Bethel. Not I'm the messenger of, not I'm here on behalf of, hey, I'm bringing you a word from. No, he says he is. So, in this, I'm just giving you some samples. There's plenty more verses where these came from, where we see this, at the same time, this messenger of the Lord, which what, even the very name implies he's not God, Right? He's not the Lord. He's the messenger of the Lord. And yet, he makes claims just like this one. I am the Lord God. There's, there's more where that came from, as I said. But both the sort of the, the distinction of and the identity with. And that's only possible in a, sort of, in a Trinitarian sense. Jesus Christ is not the Father. And by the way, just to be clear, uh, it's clearly McLeod's point of view that the passages we're talking about this angel of the Lord really is a kind of pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He is the second person. It's not just some fourth person of the Trinity who makes a rare appearance. You're probably wondering, is there a fourth person? No. Yeah, I've done some counting, and... Uh-uh. Now, as I said, the, the reading of the Old Testament, there are Hebrew scholars, there are Jewish scholars today who don't see what we were just talking about and would be irate to hear it. You know, it's not unusual for, um, for a monarch, right? We even talk about the, the royal we, you know, speaking in a plural term of oneself. By the way, the reason this argument doesn't work is that when the monarch speaks that way, they are speaking for the nation. They are speaking for a plurality, right? They don't think they're more than one person. <laughs> they speak for a nation. In fact, Sometimes in some of the older authors, you'll even hear, like, they'll, they'll refer to the monarch by the name of the country. You know, Norway, England. They had a As if the nations were coming together to discuss. And so they should. That's not the way that, I don't, doesn't sound like, is God speaking for a nation in Genesis 1.26? What nation would it be, right? He's making the nations. They haven't happened yet, right? He's making the first one. Without that notion of a three-person God, there's no plurality necessary. So again, we can, we can look back at the Old Testament. If you, just, if you start at Genesis and go all the way through Malachi, you might wonder, what is this trinity we're talking about? It's, and we'll talk about this next time. You'll see it very clearly in the New Testament. But even then, looking back on the Old Testament, with that filter, with that knowledge in mind, we see the trinity appear uh, over and over again in the hallowed pages. Now, I do want to talk about the New Testament, but now is not the time. At uh, 25 till 8, that seems like a bad time to start a discussion of the New Testament. Um, so we will actually stop here, but I do, before we, we, we conclude here, I want to ask, are there any, um, any questions, any, any comments any of you want to make? Is there anything here which has been confusing? Anything that, uh, Dr. Rankin is not confusing, but anything even for him, because he's, I'll bet he would answer a question if you ask him right now. I will take your silence as assent. There has been both Facebook reporting of the class and Twitter. That is, I, oh, like in a mere 20 minutes, that's awesome. <laughs>
I'm going to quit while I have a headband. Let's, um, let's have a word of prayer before we conclude. Heavenly Father, we live in, sometimes they seem like very challenging times, but your word is constant. And even sometimes the mysterious parts, like eternity, what does it mean for, for you to be three yet one? We, we might not understand that in all of its contours, but we can see it so clearly in your word. And we can rejoice that you are a God who transcends the human mind. Father, we ask that as we look ahead to the rest of this term, that you would, uh, that you would help us to think clearly, that you would help us to discern what is discernible and to uh, accept with joy and with faith what you would have us learn. Father, as we prepare to part company this evening, we ask that you would bless each one of us, help us to serve you well in the days and weeks to come. We pray your blessing upon each one in Jesus' name.